Michelle Kennedy and welcome to Learning Curve, the V-Hub series brought to you by Vodafone Business. In this episode, I'm speaking to Bruce Daisley about work culture. Bruce was integral in the founding of both Google and Twitter in the UK, and then spent a dozen years running Twitter in London. Since that time, he has become a Sunday Times best-selling author. Last year, Bruce published his second book on work culture called Fortitude. He also hosts his own podcast on the subject, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Bruce, hi, I'm so happy that you're here. So excited to meet you, a legend. I wanted to start by asking you um, a little bit about your book, Fortitude. Can you tell me, and anyone who doesn't know about Fortitude, uh, what they are in for when they pick up a copy? Yeah, the book's theme really is resilience. And that's a word we hear everywhere, isn't it? Especially in the post-pandemic times, we hear this idea that we've got to be resilient at work. We've Our kids need to be resilient. People that we meet and have got to be more resilient. And I became intrigued with it. I was really interested to what extent we were using resilience as a phrase to kind of take our, the problems we were presented with away, you know, to say, oh, deal with that, you need to be more resilient. And how the people who were being offered resilience courses weren't necessarily coming out of it saying, I'm ready to face the world. So that was why I sort of set about doing it, really. So how do we build our inner strength if that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about resilience? And as you say, if if these people are actually in a position where they, they don't feel that, how do we do it? My conclusion overall is that resilience is the strength we draw from each other. And Anytime you see examples of resilience, it's normally when people feel supported by their family and friends, supported by a wider community. If you're a small business and you want to make sure your team feel resilient, you know, starting up a new business, there's a setback every single day, often every Every hour, hour, right? right? And knowing that the thing that's going to get us, get us through that is a sense that the team feels strongly bonded, yeah. strongly cohesive. Yeah. Or often what you find is as businesses start to go from being startups to scale-ups and they get a little bit bigger, some of that bond that they had when, when they could originally sit around a small table with each other, they felt really tightly connected. Now, maybe there's a few more people and they're, they're working in a distributed way, they're working far away. Just reminding yourself those moments of real connection are what give you that resilience. I think is probably the thing for any boss to have in the back of their minds, I think. I mean, talking about connection and community and how other people bring you resilience, you're talking my language, um, very much a kind of obsession of mine about how we are better together effectively and never more important than when you are at work and you want to foster a culture and a work culture where people have that kind of uh, connectivity with one another. You were instrumental in in Google and Twitter in their scale-up phases. What did that teach you about strong culture and how to build it. When I went to work for Twitter, there were 400 people globally. There were a handful of people in the UK. I was like, okay, well, I wonder if we could make the Twitter culture in the in UK and then in Europe. I wonder if we could make that the special magical culture that I've always dreamed of. And uh, initially it went quite well. I think, you know, viewers and, and listeners will, will understand that actually when you've got a small group of people, you can make a a really tightly bonded culture pretty easily, actually. But it's when you start going 
to 10 to 20 to 30, things start to change. And that's where I was intrigued. What are the, the norms that you need to put in place? What are the little rituals you put in place? Or what are the things that become the family quirks about that organisation that seem to pass on the culture and create something special? So that was that was the curiosity for me. And the I think the culture at Twitter that we created was in UK and Europe. It was a really special environment, largely because... A group of us became obsessed with trying to work out if you could achieve more with fewer people. That's always the um, the exciting thing about culture. Not that it's extra effort is being appropriated out of us, but rather there's times where we just we feel so connected with what we're trying to do. You know this well. You run a business that's all about the purpose of, of that business. You feel like you're doing it because it would thrill you to see this business go on to greater success. And I think that's the secret source about great workplace culture. If you can try and get people feeling like they feel that this is so important to them or it's it's a project that they feel invested in. I think that's why I became so fascinated with how you could use this for good, really. Moving on to thinking about ourselves in work and the kind of human element of work, how do we make sure that we look after ourselves so that we stay motivated and we stay striving so that we want to get into that management meeting and have those conversations? And and as kind of business owners, how do we ensure that everyone is taking that moment to think about themselves in that work piece? The really interesting thing during the pandemic was that while there'd been a lot of talk of burnout and people being overwhelmed by their job, actually during the pandemic, the first time bosses were reporting it. It was, And as a result, it was taken a bit more seriously. Yeah. Bosses were saying, I'm feeling like I can't cope anymore. And yeah. so as a result, it, you know, there were senior chief execs who came out and said as much. But most organisations had the leadership team saying, yeah, I feel, I feel completely overwhelmed by the demands upon me. Yeah. And so because of that, it's become a more legitimate conversation. But I think the truth is we need to be honest about the conversations that we're having and the demands we make upon people. If you're not saying what you're going to stop doing, um, if you're just saying we're going to add something on top, then effectively you're saying everything is additive. You know, the way we solve this is by doing more. And most organisations could benefit by doing less. And so that discipline of saying we're going to have fewer meetings or we're going to we're going to give you a, a meeting-free day, a meeting-free week. We're going to do something that tries to take the demands away from you. I think that's the most effective way we're going to achieve this, this sort of um, reduction rather than adding more to people's lives. Um, and so I think that's a critical thing. Can you can you make work better by doing less, having less process, I think is a, a critical question to ask. I mean, I'm thinking myself now about how much additive we are bringing in as as a business. So that is absolutely right for everything I bring in. Is there something that I'm taking away? I think sometimes saying what could we do less of is as valuable for leaders as asking what could we do more of. I'm mind blown by that. What a soundbite. Because all I do is additive. So this is very helpful for me. Self-check. Going to go back and do that. <laughs> um, thinking about like generational impacts on, on workplace and work culture, do you think that... Uh, different generations and people from different generations across the workforce, do they all have a different attitude and appetite for work culture? I think these probably more consideration needs to be given to the generational challenges right now. Um, 
I think most of us can make the mistake as we go through our own working career and think, okay, well, we had it hard when we were 20, 23, 25. People today, well, you know, this is what we went through. And either we we want to pass that through saying, oh, you, you need to put up with a few years of doing something bad because that's part of how you get to where you get to. Earn your stripes. Right. Hazing is how you describe it another way, you know, asking people to go through discomfort because you went through discomfort. Oh. But separately, I think the mistake we can make is thinking because that was the poorest time of our life, uh, because now people are going through that, we we went through it and it's no different. If you're in your 20s now, the amount you spend on rent is higher than any generation's ever spent it. Absolutely. The, the idea that, you, you know, there, there's a whole group of, of Gen Xs, really, who were able to get mortgages in their 20s. And that represents just an unachievable goal for, for, for most 20-somethings now. And I think empathising with that is really critical. So I think, you know, if you can empathise with the challenges of other generations now, it helps you understand why work might not be as appealing for them, why they might not want work to be their identity to the same extent that older generations had. And I think, you know, the more we can empathise with the challenges that people face in their in their lives, the more we can be good good colleagues with them. I think, and and I suppose just from that as well, some of the challenges around workplace bias or prejudice, you wouldn't want anyone to go through that just because you have. So this kind of notion of earn your stripes is is really just should be left. That's right, and I think you know this this just being more aware of. Exactly as you've said, different themes of inclusion now is is um, a critical way to be a better organisation, I think. There will be people who are no doubt listening or watching and are thinking about, well, hang on a minute, I'm just focused on getting the business going. Like culture, sure, that will come later. Right now, I just need to get it off the ground or we're growing at such a speed. I can't think about that right now. How important is it to have a vision for culture versus coming to fix it at a time when you come up for air? I think some of the things that organisations find is that culture, unless you design it, happens accidentally. And so and so, what happens is that unless you think about these things, you're going to have a culture, but it might not be the one you want. So being mindful of things at any stage is a really important thing. And that might be just deciding what the things we reward around here, what the thing, things that we, we try and discourage around here. It might be what are the rituals that we have? You know, what are the things that we, by setting time aside for them, we, we celebrate the importance of them. So, you know, I, I chatted to a, quite a lot of people who've, who've told me the things that have gone wrong in their organisation. And normally the lack of connection between team members is, is one of the big ones. Yeah. So if you value connection between team members, then probably setting time aside for it. What other benefits do you expect to see when you are consciously building culture? To some extent, the, the academic work backs this up. It's this idea of discretionary effort. If you're helping someone around the house, as a kid, you, your mum or dad or your carer might ask you to tidy your room and you know that you probably did it with the minimal amount of effort to look like you were doing it. Um, but you know that had you wanted to do it or needed to do it, you could have done it a lot better. And that discretionary effort, I think most of us understand these moments at work where you could 
do something with much more gusto than you do it. And that's the that's the elusive secret source of good culture. You know that if you can create something that people feel like they want to do their best work, their best work is noticed, their best work matters, then they will do it more effectively with more conviction. That's the magic of, of a good workplace culture. And trying to unlock it, I think it comes down to creating a sense of pride in the organisation you're part of. If you feel proud to tell people, this is where I work and here's what we do, it plays a really big part because effectively it becomes part of your identity in terms of it becomes part of how you feel proud of what you're doing and 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 proud of how that reflects upon you. And so that sense of pride in an organisation, that sense of identity, they play a really big part in what you're trying to create. When I mentioned before, um, I worked at Twitter and that's what we thought we needed to do. We we had far fewer people than other people in our space. Yeah. You know? Our competitors had 20 or 100 times more employees. And so we thought, well, the only thing we've got that can differentiate us is the way we do our jobs. So if you have a meeting with a person from Twitter, can it be someone's favourite meeting of the week? Can it be their best meeting of the week? Can it be the meeting that they left going, I loved that. I feel so inspired by that. Right. Okay. So that gives you an objective. So that means when you're hiring people, can you hire people who are going to be those radiators that are going to create a really beneficial yes. uh, environment? Can we try to set those people up to create that? So if we want something to be the, someone's best meeting of the week, what do they need to do in that meeting? So we used to make sure that anyone went out from Twitter, they they gave a presentation that always seemed to have information that was like so fresh, it felt like, wow, when did you do that? And so we, we just had one person that every day was looking at news stories about Twitter, was looking at data about Twitter. So their job was putting that into a slide. So someone would go out and do a presentation and the there might be a tweet in there about a news story that happened yesterday or happened uh, the day. And it just felt, wow, it's like, this is so fresh. It doesn't feel like someone created this months ago, but they've put care into creating it now. And all of that is about trying to create a culture, project a culture, showing what is valued inside an organisation. So these things might, might seem trivial early on in when you've got five of you, when you've got six of you, they might seem trivial, but the more you can give considerations to what does our seventh employee look like? What does, you know, we're, we're just hiring our 10th person. What do we want our 10th person to look like? Because um, that will represent what our next 10 employees after that looks like. Now, some things to bear in mind. What some people can sometimes do is they can say, uh, I want to hire people who, if we were all stuck in a lift somewhere or we were all in a car journey somewhere, we'd all get on. And what that can end up doing is producing homogeneity. Everyone looks the yeah. same. Yeah. And so as long as you're aware of that, you can try and ensure that you're hiring someone a bit different. So I think culture is often your kind of your ace card as well. Absolutely. Someone feeling like they're going to have an impact. Yeah. Someone feeling that like their work is going to make a difference yeah. is such a motivator. Yeah. You know, sometimes we can find ourselves thinking, oh, well, look, you know, I'll do this job for a few years and hopefully then I'll be promoted to the level where I have an impact. And to some extent, you're wishing your life away. This is the benefit of being a small organisation. This is the benefit of being a startup or a scale up that someone can join 
have an impact, help maybe hire two or three people, have responsibility that they would never have in a big organization. So actually as a as a means to attract people, demonstrating to them that they're going to be a, a stakeholder, that they're going to have an opinion, that they're going to contribute something. That's your point of difference. I, I definitely know having worked in big firms and when you see really good talent go to smaller organizations. The reason why is they say, look, you know, I'm going to be designing something or creating something or implementing something that it would take me 10 years to do. And I want to do that now, not in 10 years. So it's a really big point of attracting good talent. The pandemic obviously had a real impact on how we work and where we work. Uh, I run a hybrid team, so we've always had um, an offsite component to, to that. How does culture operate within either hybrid or fully remote uh, teams? And does tech or can tech help us in that respect? It's such a big question, isn't it? And I suspect as, as a leader who's had to wrestle with these things, all of us are in the situation where we're thinking, is there a correct answer? And the truth is, I don't think there's a correct answer. But what we do know is that there seems to be very little substitute for some degree of face-to-face time. Now, you might end up concluding that the way that you could do face-to-face time is you're going to be just together one day a week yep. and you're going to have no meetings that day. And, you you know, you, you're just going to be slinging ideas around the desks or you're going to have a, an idea session that's just focused on that or you're going to have a team lunch. And then you might say, oh, well, everyone's going to go back to where they're doing their work feeling more energised. I've seen a lot of organisations that are fully remote that do that, but they do it once every three months. And they say, we're going to have a week together, which is all about putting unexpected groups together, working on projects, working on silly stuff, but it's about building the connection so that when people go away, they feel energised to come back and do it again. So what I would say is, there's not a hard and fast rule, but what is true is that that face-to-face time has a real value to it. Yeah. And so you might say for your organisation, three days three days a week is what we need to, to get that connection. You might say it's two days a week. Whatever it is, I, I think we can't underestimate the importance of for building trust, for building relationships, being together plays a really big part. Chemistry. It really matters. Yeah. And I think that I mean, for us, we've had to work really hard to get that balance. So we have partially remote team. We have some on site. We come in a couple of days a week, but we have an all hands where everyone comes together once a quarter and we can eat together, do something silly, as you say. And it's working for us for now for the size that we're at and we have to keep reassessing it. And I think that's right. You can keep reassessing it. This is not a kind of an exact science. This is an art that you can get right. Precisely that. And I think... And dem- and saying that to your team as well, saying that, look, we're learning as we go yeah. here. So there might be times where we ask for a little bit more time together. And fingers crossed, you'll give us the benefit of the doubt about that. There might be times that, like you say there, this is all working very well and we've got a lovely balance, these teams working remotely. Great. But I think that degree of discussion that this is a learning process that no one's got the answers on and we're ju- our objective is to create a harmonious group that are working on a project with a degree of commitment and cohesion that's our objective okay when it comes to well-meaning managers we've all been them or had them what are the common mistakes that you see in relation to culture where you think no 
Yeah, normally the biggest mistake is that someone's been promoted from a job they were really good at and they carry on doing that job even though they're promoted. And so what that means normally for the people in their team is that they're micromanaging. They're telling, oh, if I was you, I'd do it like this. Actually, why don't you do it? I'll come with you, actually. I'll come and do it with you because they carry on doing the job they were fabulous at. And the critical thing really is that most of us we wouldn't we wouldn't want to be managed like that ourselves so trying to empathize with how we want to be managed and then projecting that onto others now that might mean for your team members you give them really clear expectations of what you want from them and you say look you know i'm a demanding manager we've got high standards i'm going to demand these things from you i'm going to be available you know all these times whenever you want to talk to me but if you don't hit those goals, then you should expect me to come in and try and help you. But otherwise, I'm going to allow you to get on with them and try and set clear parameters of what success looks like. Yeah. Um, and then sort of lay down those those rules. I think that's the critical thing. The mistake we can make is managing others without the degree of autonomy that we would want ourselves. Work is such a big part of our lives that if we can create a moment of joy from it, I, I feel it just creates a happier existence. And what I know is work can really set the climate for your life. It yeah. can create the weather for your life. What is the future of work? Big question. Well, I mean, so much is changing all of the time. Yeah. And, you know, we sit here and AI has gone from being this sort of thing that we were all blah, blah, blahing about. A see, bit faddy, maybe, whatever. We, yeah. yeah. And, you know, maybe there was a bit of exhaustion because we'd heard the metaverse right. and, yeah, okay, right. not sure about that. Right. And so AI just seemed to be associated with it. And now anyone who spends 20 minutes pursuing and looking into AI with a degree of curiosity can't help but think, Oh, that's actually phenomenal. That could be a really big impact. Yeah. And so I think the critical thing is that for all of us, we need to boil things down. Organizations are about a group of people trying to achieve something that individuals on their own couldn't do. And so whether that is using technology or whether that's, you know, creating something that our our individual contributions help fit together like a jigsaw. The critical thing is then thinking about what a good organisation looks like. And it's often got humility. It's often got curiosity. Um, it's often got the willingness to work together. So the critical thing for me is trying to create a version of work that's got space yeah. for people to have that curiosity. Generally, the, the times that we can't have an interest in new stuff is when our calendars are back to back, where we don't have any space to do anything that's exploratory. We, we're just trying to get today's stuff done. So making sure that the space in our work lives, this this slack in the system where we can get new stuff done and where these bonds between us, where we feel an affinity and connection with the people around us, where it makes us believe that we can do more as a team than we can individually. Work is such a big part of our lives that if we can create a moment of joy from it, I, I feel it just creates a happier existence. Three things that I can do if I've watched this or listened to this and thought, right, I haven't really fed or nurtured culture in the way that I could have done, but now I understand why it's important. What should I do? Number one, what do you pay attention to? To what do you dedicate time to? What's your organisation doing to symbolise importance? So 
you mentioned that you have a quarterly gathering of your team. Right. That symbolizes some moment of connection. And ask yourself what you're doing there. So are you setting time aside that symbolizes something that's important? In that meeting, there's a second one, in that meeting, what do you reward? What do you acknowledge? What do you celebrate? Do you celebrate someone who's come up with a good idea? Do you celebrate failure? Do you actually, do you say, you know, here's the nice try award, but something that didn't work. So you're recognizing that not everything around here is going to work first time, but we love people who are trying new stuff. So, you know, those two things effectively are a way to signal what works and what doesn't work. The final thing I would say is how can you try to free your team up? Have some degree of control, some degree of autonomy over their work. Are you freeing your team members up to do the thing you want them to do? Because quite often we could find that we layer you know, early stages of bureaucracy onto people and we're not freeing them to do it. So gifting them the autonomy to do far more in their jobs often results in them coming back saying, wow, I feel like I'm getting loads done here. I feel like I'm being allowed to express my ideas or to try new things. So I think those things in aggregate are very small acts that can we can all do to improve culture in our teams. Bruce, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going away with work can be the weather of our lives. Wow. Okay. So I want to make it sunny. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Learning Curve, the V-Hub series presented by me, Michelle Kennedy, and brought to you by Vodafone Business. If you are starting or building an SME business, do check out the free V-Hub service from Vodafone. V-Hub offers access to webinars and training on digital topics. You can also speak to a team of advisors for guidance specific to your business. Support can really help to fast track your plans, so do use the free resource and speak to an advisor today. For more information, search Vodafone V-Hub or click on the link provided.